Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Michelle Borba to talk about her book, Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. Dr. Borba is also the author of the book Unselfie, and she's an internationally renowned educational psychologist and expert in parenting, bullying, and character development. She's also a regular NBC contributor who appears on Today and has been featured as an expert on Dateline, Dr. Phil, Fox and Friends, Dr. Oz, among many others. Dr. Borba wrote this book, Thrivers, after going on a quest to track down traits that are most helpful for raising successful kids, but that also have the most science to back them up. And she arrived at these seven traits. We're going to get into what those traits are. We're going to get into some really cool strategies for how to teach them. We're going to talk about all kinds of topics like what your family stands for and how to make sure that that message actually gets through to your teenager. We're going to talk about the three different kinds of empathy. We're also going to talk about goal setting. We're going to look at what most parents get wrong when they think about goal setting. And all the while, we're going to be answering that fundamental question of why some kids struggle while other kids shine, and what we as parents can do about it. I am really excited to speak with Dr. Borba today about all of that and more. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the show today. So talk to me now about why after spending all this time writing Unselfie and, you know, cracking the code that you felt like now the world needs another book and that this is the topic that is so vitally important, thriving. The fascinating thing was I started writing this and finished it right before the pandemic. And I was so concerned about kids. In fact, I've never been this concerned because I kept seeing this stat that said one in five American teens was going to suffer from a mental health disorder. How could that be? One in five. That's the AMA. That's the APA. So I started interviewing kids. And there's nothing better than talking to a teen. I I interviewed about 100 of them. Uh, as I was writing Thrivers, counselors gave me access to the kids. It was one-on-one, an hour each, and they were extraordinary. Very smart kids, but almost every one of them said, we are the most stressed out generation, you know. Mm. And second of all, they begin to all say, because we're running on empty. So it was this, this thing on, why are you running on empty when you're so loved, so educated, your GPAs have never been higher? And one kid said, the epitome that put the knife through my heart. It was like, we feel like we're being kind of raised as products and test scores and not human beings. And we're missing the human side. Mm. So there was the, okay, let's look at the human side stuff. 
Thrivers was this compilation of not only hearing what the kids said, which were, I mean, if you really want to know a problem, ask a kid and they give the best solutions ever. They were mind boggling. But the second thing I discovered along the way is that it wasn't just the kids. It was, they came up with simple ideas and the science is all on our side that resilient children are made, not born. And as a result, we can make a major difference on their lives. Yeah, you start the book out with a bold statement. The first line, uh, it says, our kids are in trouble. And so uh, it really feels that way. Um, and it sounds like that's what you saw in these interviews that you conducted. And wow, that was even before the pandemic. Um, yeah, and here's the thing. Just a little footnote on that. A crisis only amplifies a pre-existing problem. So if there's a problem beforehand and voila, here comes the pandemic. And we now know, gosh, we're really concerned about anxiety and stress and depression and all those things. But it didn't just start with the pandemic. It has this kind of a slow buildup. And that's that's the concern. But the good news is we can teach resilience. It doesn't have to be hard. It's an ongoing experience and it's not another program and you don't need a PhD in order to do it. Wow. Drivers is science-backed ways to make simple changes with your kids at home or in school based on what science says will help them thrive now and later. So you talk a lot about the concept of core assets, mm -hmm. um, identifying our children's core assets. You say right here on page 38, the fact is identifying our children's core assets can be one of our most important parenting tasks. Another bold statement here. Um, so talk to me now about, uh, yeah. about why that is. Why is this so crucial? Well, the first thing is when we look at the science, I know we're not talking about the, you know, the, the parent I'm talking to, we're talking about the neighbors, but yeah. all of the research says we spend more time fixing our kids and focusing in on their weaknesses opposed to their strengths. Mm. Then comes Forbes, then comes businesses. What do they do? You walk in, you just get employed. The first thing they give you is a strength asset. Strength. What are you good at? How are you going to contribute? But we don't do that to our kids when they're little. And what we do is we also stray away from who they are and focus in on what they should be instead. So the key in uh, that core asset is many parents said that single-handedly is just the most valuable thing for them because it starts you reprocessing who is your kid? What are they good at? What are their learning styles? What are their hobbies? One of the most simple ordinary things that help kids decompress is a hobby. Well, and when I asked middle school kids, what are your hobbies? They looked at me like, who's got time for a oh, hobby? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> in the end, all of the work on resilience says a hobby is where you go to, to just kind of get down. It doesn't make any difference if it's knitting, right. or woodworking, or hiking, something that is just there for you. And you use that the rest of your life. That, that thing on what we know about that core asset we also know that that's the greatest way to figure out where your kid should be going later on for a vocation or for college, not because it looks good, but follow the path. The number one time when our kids are most likely to drop out of school is end of freshman year, first semester of college. Wow. Why? Well, because very often they're in the wrong place. They don't see like that's my place. It's somebody else's place that's pushed them. And you want a happy kid? You want to be happy. 
you're more likely to be at your happiest when you're in what's called a flow state, mm. which means you're finding your passion. You're not going to do that 24 seven, but you're finding your passion and going with it. Now your mental health needs rise up and your whole thing about happiness also increases and you're better off. So it's finding your kids' passions, interests, learning styles and flow that way. And so what what exactly is a core asset? It's the, the thing that they really um, do just well, kind of naturally or... Yeah, it's it would be kind of like your signature strength. You got lots of things that you're good at, but what are the things that stand out that make you special, that give you strength? And in fact, when I'm talking to kids that are younger, I say, pick up your pencil and write. Okay, that's your strength. Now pick up your pencil and try to write with the other hand. Whoop, that's not your core asset. Unless you're ambidextrous, it's harder to do it. So follow where your strengths are, because the first step to all of this is understanding your self-awareness, having a clear understanding of who I am, mm. and you're going to follow that path forever. It doesn't mean you're not going to focus in on trying to get better at the math that you're struggling at, but don't just focus in on the weakness because it's going it's to derail you along the way. Well, so, okay, I mean, isn't it pretty easy to figure out the core asset? You just say, hey, I know my kid's really good at tennis. Uh, so it's his core, his core asset. He's really good, uh, and he has a really good backhand, specifically. Um, so uh, is, is that his core asset? It could be. But okay. the interesting thing about why that's so easy is because he's really, really good at it. Yeah. And he'll really tell you, hey, mom, I got to go play tennis because I got a great backhand. It's the hidden stuff that, that kind of lies like, what is his learning strength? What are the other things he's yeah. interested in? For instance, a dad told me as I was writing Thrivers, he said, okay, I got a middle school kid. And all this kid talks about is wolves. He drives me nuts because he keeps talking about wolves. I think he'd be great in law. He said, but it got to the point where I finally said, okay, I got to arrange him to go to a, meet with a park ranger and go to a local park. And I sat there with my mouth open because my kid was talking wolves at such a high level, politely mm. correcting the park ranger about stats about wolves. And that's when I said, forget law, this kid needs to go into biology. Uh -huh. And I changed my whole course because I was pushing against him. I wasn't following who my kid was. It was going against the grain of what I wanted to be. And the first thing is just figure out who your kid is and then you can move ahead. There's lots of other strengths you can weave on. Yeah, so and it's really about what kind of lights them up. Yeah, what they gravitate towards, what gives them the energy, what's easier to do. And don't stray from that because in the end, that's going to help your child really develop the, I got this kind of an attitude because I've got some confidence. I've got some assets along the way. Okay, and you write um, that we should acknowledge our children's core assets. You say we should identify a few core strengths that we want our children to recognize about themselves and then we should actually start to uh, acknowledge those when we see them how do we do that is easily you're not the goal isn't to give them another trophy because that ain't gonna work <laughs> instead to at least let the child know that you're aware of what their strengths are and it could be nothing more i notice that you really enjoy woodworking or, wow, you seem to be really pleased and energized when you keep working on that art. Wow, you're getting better and better and improving on that. Would you like an art lesson? You know, it's just acknowledging it. Look around your house. Do you have a photograph of your kid engaged in it? We're so quick to say when the kid comes walking home, what you get. And we're not so quick to say, did you get a chance to show off your art today? <laughs> it's like, right. so what yeah, happens yeah. is 
we get that we put the character down of the traits of kindness and honest and all those because those are also core assets your character of who you are and what you bring to the plate that's what we really want to do it's those kind of not the not the push 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 and the accolade accolade because then what we do is just build soap absorption that doesn't help but if we help our kid develop a who you are that's what makes the difference You come up with these seven traits in this book, um, and these are these are the kind of key areas that we want to focus on for thriving. Where where did these come from, and why are why are these the seven? Thank you for asking that. It's one of the first times anybody's asked. It came from really rigorous trying to figure out what really helps our kids thrive. The first thing it came from was what we've never given in terms of parenting books. Uh-huh longitudinal work on resilience. There are some amazing researchers, Emmy Warden, Ann Maston, Norm Gourmet, yeah. who have pulled aside kids that are really, really struggling because of extreme adversity. We're talking abuse, poverty, war zones. Yeah. And then what they do, these are all separate studies. They follow the same kids from like birth up through 40 years of age. And then they go, why is it that some of these kids, despite extreme adversity still thrive. Mm. All right. What I did was I pulled all of those studies out with a bunch of post-it notes and my desk became a war zone of just, just amazing of what are the commonalities? What are teachable things that these kids have in common? Because we don't have time to, to look at, okay, this one's locked into DNA. I don't want that. I want which of them we can push and pull and, and help our kids thrive by teaching it. What I did is I came up with seven of them. And then what I did to, to try to keep eliminating and getting down to a core number, as I said, okay, which of the seven not only boost resilience, but are also going to help our kids be peak performers in the classroom? Because that's what every parent wants. And what I discovered, my aha moment, it wasn't either or, get the kid helpful in the classroom or get the kid resilient. Those same seven you'll see throughout the book have immense scientific value to also helping your kid be um, to focus longer or be more attentive or improve in their grades or be a deeper thinker. And that's what you're looking for. Stop with the either or or just the cognitive hype. If you do those models and those seven, you're going to get both. And that's what's going to help because they also reduce mental health problems and help raise the happier kid that we all want. So let's talk about empathy. Uh, empathy is a little more complicated maybe than we thought or uh, we realized. You know, I heard empathy, I thought it was kind of one thing, but now here you are telling me I got to think about the ABCs of empathy and that there's like three different components of it. Walk me through uh, how that breaks down. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I came up with those three components because I had a lot of parents and teachers say the kid just doesn't have any empathy because she's not crying through Bambi. And what I wanted the parent to realize is that some kids are more A, affective. You can see it on their face. They see the the hurricane just hit and that teen is really distressed. That's one kind of empathy, but not every kid is the the kid who's going to wipe their tears away when they're, you know, they're reading some kind of a book. The second one is C which is the cognitive kind of empathy. They may be a little more serious. 
They may be a deeper thinker, but this is the kind of kid who, thank goodness, is trying to figure out where the other kid's coming from. You, it's, it's a wonderful commonality. In fact, Harvard says that's perspective taking, and that's one of the highest correlations of job employability. In fact, we're looking at 20% of Fortune 500 companies that are now doing empathy training because the, the new employees are so low in it. Wow. You want to be able to get into the shoes of the client. Yeah. Pop, that perspective taking starts around the age of eight and you can keep stretching it. But it's trying to, you don't have to agree with the person, but can you try to understand where his view is? Mm. That's the C. But the cool thing is, if you have an A and a C, you actually can get to the B and the B is compassion in action. So that's the kid who just doesn't understand it or feel it, says, I got to do something about it. That would be Greta Thunberg is going, let's get rid of climate change or let's figure out what we can do on bullying or little Christian Bucks, who was a second grader who said, there's a lot of kids on this playground who really are lonely. He was feeling it. He was understanding it. So he goes to his principal and kid, can't we put a bench on the playground so that if somebody's really lonely, they can just sit on the bench and then the rest of us can go, oh, he needs a friend because he's sitting on the buddy bench. <laughs> well, Christian Buck's principal so said, cute. go up on the assembly and convince everybody that we need to do that. <laughs> so we got on the assembly. He convinced everybody. All the kids raised their hand. There's a buddy bench. But here's the cool thing. Kids all over the world now have buddy benches. Yeah. I just got a call from Saudi Arabia going, we're getting a buddy bench. Colombia, Mexico, Nicaragua. One kid, one second grader, mm. a newspaper come in and take a little picture of him. And now Aww. it went by. But he had compassion in action. Yeah. That's what you're looking for. Best stress reducer there is. Don't just feel it and worry about it. Do something about it. And that's what you're looking for. Teens are phenomenal if you let them drive where I'm concerned, as opposed to here's what'll look good on the resume. Uh huh. So it's almost like by cultivating the um, affective and the cognitive empathy, it drives you to then want to do something about it. You hope and, uh, because in reality, you it really very often does. Um, and I found that over and over with kids. In fact, there's lots of kids that I interviewed in Thrivers. And here's the interesting thing that's that's why we rob it and why we can cultivate it. When I asked point by point, these were kids who were I would consider and you would consider a change maker. They were kids that had the heart like Christian Bucks who saw a problem and decided to do something about it. But they were driven from the inside out, not from it's going to look good. Let's do something. Right. So each kid I asked what changed your life? It seems like you're really into this. He goes, what Nathan, Nathan was nine. He said, well, I was in the backseat of the car and it was a rainy day. And I saw this guy, he looked homeless and he looked really cold. And I said, mom, can you stop the car? And can we give dad's overcoat to him? He looks so cold. Bless mother. Cause she pulled over, stopped the car. Nathan gets out and gives the guy an overcoat. Wow. He said, it was the look in his eye. He got a little teary-eyed and he kept saying, thank you. I got back in the car and I couldn't stop looking at him. It was face-to-face. -face. Yeah. That's the piece. It doesn't help so much at the beginning stage to collect 50,000 coins and give them to Biafra because the kid isn't seeing yeah, the joy. Right. It will later when he's a really high level of cognitive and, and affective empathy. But if you do it face-to-face, Every kid was changed by the moment. He went home and said, okay, then we had to collect all the overcoats. The neighbors didn't have any left. We just started to drive and he's delivered hundreds of overcoats by that one moment.
that is so cool. And I think that's what we all hope is that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll raise kids that will do something positive in the world. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times our kids do the opposite. They do negative things. They engage in uncaring behaviors. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? You have actually in here a framework that you say, uh, you call it name frame reclaim. And you say that this is effective to use if done calmly and with dignity uh, anytime that a kid does something disappointing or uncaring. How does that work? Well, it comes from science, and the guy's name was Martin Hoffman. For 40 years, he's been trying to figure out why some kids are more empathetic and well-behaved. He said the key that the parent does is figure out what they stand for in the house. Figure out what you stand for in the house. And the moment the kid goes across that line, he's not honest, he's not caring, he's not responsible, you call him on it. So you name it. He says you name it with what is called an inductive statement. Now, that's kind of tricky, but here's how it works. It's real easy. Okay. You say real simply, I'm disappointed in that behavior. It's not a question mark. Am I disappointed in that behavior? No, I'm disappointed in that behavior. And then you call it or you name it. That was unkind. And you know what we stand for in this house. What is we stand for in this house? Period. The first thing is, if you completely tell your disappointment, you're not nailing the kid, you're naming the behavior. What happens is they discovered from toddler to teen, the kid begins to realize not just one time, but if you keep using the same model, the kid eventually gets into the shoes of knowing why he did it wrong. Now you're going to reframe it and reclaim it. So what are you going to do differently next time? As a result, the kid begins to internalize mom's discipline or dad's discipline or teacher's Mm -hmm. discipline and goes, I didn't do it right. Next time I got to do it this way. If you don't call the kid on it, he begins to get away with it. And that's not cool. But you're also trying to develop this internal sense of here's who I am. Here's what we stand for in this house. And it becomes a lot easier. Inductive discipline. I love that. Well, because you're linking it to the principle behind it, which I think is the Mm -hmm. key that so many parents miss. Um, You know, you have to link it to some sort of a deeper value or principle that's really important because that's what sticks with them. Um, The rules are going to change. They're going to not necessarily be uh, following all these exact same habits when they get out on their own, but they are going to still live by the same principles and values. And that's what's important. Exactly. To teach them, so. You know, what's really cool. There are seven traits. Now I'm going to skip one for a minute. Ooh. We're going to go over self-control. and we're, I know we're going to go back to it. We're going to go to four because what you just said aligns empathy with integrity. Mm. What I discovered as I was writing those seven is I also found, and I wasn't expecting it, what was called, I call a multiplier effect. Okay. That is too often parents always say, what's the one most important one I should be doing? Does he have to have all seven? It's a rare adult that has all seven, but the more you have, the better. But you pair any two together, like empathy plus integrity, it multiplies their outcome. And now they're superpowers and it's far more likely to thrive. So go to integrity because integrity takes empathy up a notch. Integrity was the kid who, thrives because he has a strong moral code. It's everything you just said, but it's been planted over and over in the family. Easiest idea I've ever seen on strong moral code, Mia Dunn. She's this incredible kid from Florida. I was asking all the teachers, can you tell me about one kid that I should go interview Ah. that has this strong moral code? Every one of them said, 
Mia Dunn, go figure out how she became so darn honest. She's mind boggling. She graduated a couple of years ago, but we still talk about Mia Dunn. So I go find this kid and I say, how did you become so honest? She laughed and said, same thing you just said, how I was raised. I said, okay, Mia, how were you raised? She said, real easy. I remember my, what my parents did when I was six. So simple. They called us into the family room and there's chart paper all over the floor with marking pens. My dad's pop popcorn. My mother's sitting there. My brothers come in. We all sit. And dad said, we're going to talk about what kind of family we want to be remembered for and who we are as a family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what a great question. I said, so what'd you do? She said, dad said, there isn't any right or wrong answer. We're just going to kind of brainstorm words and put them on the chart paper. What kind of words, you know, values and virtues of what do you think is most important? So pretty soon we ran out of room on the chart paper, you know, like honest and kind and respect. 400 virtues have been adopted through time. Who's got time to teach 400? Dad said, okay, we ran out of paper. Now we're going to vote. And the most votes wins. So who are we as a family? And we all chose honest. So we all, dad said, that's who we are. We're now the honest duns. I went, well, that's pretty easy. She said, yeah, that became our mantra. So my next question was, how did you remember it? And she laughed and said, it was impossible not to, because my mother must have said it 50 times a day. She dropped me off at school. Remember, we're the honest duns. If somebody mm. did something wrong, remember, we're the honest duns. What are you going to do differently next time? We'd be watching a movie. My mother would say, see, they're honest duns. Uh. <laughs> my mother and dad said it so much, we became it. And that's exactly how you instill conscience in a kid. I think what's happening is our kids are getting inundated with somebody else's mixed values or adults behaving very, very badly. Yeah. And so how are they going to learn the values? You got to take them up a notch. We're here with Dr. Michelle Borba talking about scientifically proven approaches to take teenagers from struggling to thriving. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. But, you know, the bottom line you're looking for is maybe use the mantra, never do for your child what your child can do for himself. Mm. Because as soon as you start doing it, you're bubble wrapping or you're lawn mowing or you're helicoptering, whatever you want to call it, you're actually robbing your kid of learning resilience. Strength number five. And I okay. was blown away with how many thrivers possessed curiosity. Not that they were Picassos and Einsteins, but they were out of the box thinkers. And why is that so critical for thriving? Because you don't know what's going to be the adversity that comes along the way. What's going to be the challenge? You're not going to be there, but your kid's going to face them. And what does a thriver do? They go, I got this because I'll figure out a way around it or through it. They're problem solvers. They're risk takers. That would be skill number six, perseverance. The mm -hmm. study that was the science backed on it, just so you know, there's evidence on it, was Lewis Terman. Lewis Terman was one of the most mm -hmm. incredible professors ever in terms of uh, development in psychology, who swore that the single greatest correlation to success was high IQ. And he said, I'm going to prove it. He identified uh. 1,500 kids that were all highly gifted and all had been tested as highly gifted. And he says, I'm going to follow those kids and we should be putting all our time and energy into gifted and talented kids. And by the end of the year, he realized he was wrong because the other kids in the other classrooms that weren't so gifted, but were just as successful as the kids that he was studying. He now realizes that the highest correlation of successful people came down to first perseverance. They hung in there. They didn't give up. 
goal setting came up over and over and over again, but all of them had learned goal setting before they left high school. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.